Father, we acknowledge that we are here this morning to worship you, Lord, to bring you glory. We are not here to worship ourselves. We're not here to worship the man in the pulpit. We're not here to worship um, what our culture would like to hear. Lord, we're here to worship you. And so, Lord, we pray that we would come with humble hearts, eager to hear what your word has to say to us. And Lord, that we would truly be willing to go wherever your word leads us, um, because your hands are the safest hands for us to be in. Lord, we dare not entrust ourselves to our own hands. Lord, help us to be eager to, to know you, to know what you require of us as your people. And Lord, as we approach a passage that um, is admittedly very difficult to understand, we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand what you want us to understand and that he would enable us um, to know how it ought to change our lives, Lord, for your glory. So we ask for your help this morning as we come to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're looking this morning at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verses 2 through 16. And some of you may have a heading on that section entitled, Head Coverings. And this is probably a passage I've been dreading to come to because I know it's a tough one. Uh, it's one of the most difficult passages in all the New Testament to interpret. And I've probably spent more time studying this passage than I have for any other passage that I've ever needed to preach. And I still feel that I have not studied it enough. And even if I had years to study this passage, I don't think I would be able to uncover enough about it to preach it in a fully satisfactory way. So I would encourage each of you to be a good Berean as you listen to me, that you'd be discerning, and that you'd compare what I say with the rest of Scripture. And I think you'll find that even if I don't understand what some portions of this passage means, the applications I draw from it, I'm confident you'll be able to find in other portions of Scripture. So just realize that I have many unanswered questions regarding this text, and if I had those answers, it might change the way I preach this. Um, so with that massive disclaimer, here we go. So this section here, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, it's the first of three issues regarding the practice of corporate worship that Paul begins to go over with these believers. And this passage in particular deals with how believers are dressed. Lord willing, next week we'll look at verses 17 to 34, which deal with the practice of the Lord's Supper in the church. And then after that, we'll come to chapters 12 through 14, which deal with the practice of spiritual gifts. And the fact that the passage we're looking at this morning is being written with the idea of corporate worship in Paul's mind is evident from a couple of Paul's statements in this passage. First, take a look at verse 4. There Paul speaks of a man praying or prophesying. Now, the gift of prophecy, when that was in operation in the church, it was a gift that was intended to be used in the context of the gathered assembly. That was not something you did off on your own in private, 
It was something that was for the edification of the whole body of Christ. If you turn over to chapter 14 and verse 3, you'll see this. Paul says, But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and encouragement. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. So that's a clue that this is, Paul has in mind a practice that is to take place within the context of the corporate worship of the church. Not only that, but in verse 16 of chapter 11, Paul refers to the practice of the churches of God. So again, that's another indicator that he has in mind how believers conduct themselves within the corporate worship of, the, of God, among the people of God. So, Paul begins with this issue out of these three issues concerning the corporate gathering of believers together. And it seems that Paul begins with this issue out of the three because it's directly tied to how Paul ended chapter 10. If you turn back to chapter 10 and you look at verse 31, there Paul said, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. This issue of how men and women were dressing was not a matter of, or, or, excuse me, it was a matter of importance, not because clothing is important. It was important because of the effect that a person's manner of dress would have upon others. And Paul ended chapter 10 saying, give no offense. That is why this is coming up now in this letter. So let's begin to walk through this passage. It's too long for me to read it. I don't have enough time, but we're just going to read it as we go. So the first thing we find is in verses 2 and 3. And we find there a principle established. Paul establishes a principle here, and this principle is an appeal to God's authority. An appeal to God's authority. As usual, Paul seeks to ground his instruction upon settled truth. And to do so, he first expresses his appreciation to these believers for the degree to which they have remembered him and they have shown commitment to the truth of God that has been revealed to them. Look at verse 2. Paul says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now that word tradition, when we hear it, it usually brings up negative connotations in our minds because we think of Jesus denouncing the traditions of the Pharisees because they would set aside the commandment of God so that they could obey their own traditions. But that's not how Paul means it here. A tradition in and of itself is something that was passed down to you and then you take it and you pass it down to others. Man-made traditions, if we're not careful, can become idols, but traditions that are handed down to us from God are authoritative, and they're good. They're inspired. Paul speaks later in this chapter of the Lord's Supper as a tradition. 
If you look at chapter 11, verse 23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That's a tradition. He received it from Christ and he passed it on. That's the Lord's Supper. Also, the gospel is spoken of as a tradition. If you turn over to chapter 15, in verse 1, Paul says, Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I proclaimed as good news to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I proclaimed to you as good news, unless you believed for nothing. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. There's that traditional language. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So the truths that Paul has handed off to these believers aren't truths that he made up. They were truths that he received from Christ from other apostles, and he has passed this on to these believers. And overall, though there's a lot of issues, they have, for the most part, clung to the traditions, to the gospel truths, to the way they ought to be behaving. But as we've seen throughout this letter, there are a lot of leaks in the boat of their doctrine and their practice. And Paul is trying to patch those up. There are a lot of leaks. He's been steadily using the sealant of the truth of God to try to plug holes in the doctrine and the practice of these believers. And he's doing the same thing here in this passage of chapter 11. And he takes one more sealant of truth here to plug up this next hole that he sees. And that truth we find in principle in verse 3. And the whole section here rests upon this principle. Look at verse 3. Paul says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now Paul here is clearly outlining a hierarchy of authority here. And it seems strange to us that he didn't begin this list with the last item. God is the head of Christ. Why didn't he put that first? Paul begins instead speaking of the head of the man and the head of the woman. He does that because that's the issue he's addressing in this passage. The relation between men and women within the corporate worship. There are God-ordained differences between men and women that have a direct impact on how worship in God's church is to be conducted. So let's work through this list here in verse 3. The first item is obvious. Christ is the head of every man. Christ is the head of every man. We could go to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 10 to get some insight on that. Christ is the head of every man. Colossians 2 verse 10 Paul says, and in him, that is Christ, you have been filled, who is the head over all rule and authority. Christ is the head over all rule and authority. Jesus Christ is our authority in all things, and he trumps every other authority in our lives. 
he is the head of every man. Back in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, the second item in the list seems clear enough, though it can make us squirm a bit given our society's rejection of this idea. He says, and the man is the head of a woman. God has ordained that in the family and in the church, his authority be delegated to men. And this has nothing to do with a man being better than a woman or any of that nonsense. It is simply how God has ordered things to be in his creation so that he may be glorified in the manner of his own choosing. This is how he has designed us as believers to live. This interpretation of the man being the authority of his wife is borne out by Ephesians chapter 5. Turn there to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Paul writes, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the what? The head of the wife as what? As Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. God has designed for the authority of Christ to be mediated to the woman through the man. God has delegated his authority to the husband and the family, to the father, to the elders in the church. Just as I obey God through obeying the morally legitimate laws of this country, because God has ordained rulers to be where they are, I obey the rulers out of obedience to God, so a wife obeys Christ by obeying the morally legitimate directions of her husband. Out of obedience to Christ, the wife is to obey her husband. Now, obviously, there's limits to that. If a governor or a husband or a church church leader requires you to sin, you must disobey because your ultimate authority is who? Christ, not your husband, not the ruler, not the church leader, Christ. Now, if we come back to 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, the last item in this list can be confusing to us. Paul says that God is the head of Christ. Now, we believe as Christians that the Bible teaches that God is one being. He's one in essence, and yet he is three persons. If the persons of the Trinity, being the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, if they share the same essence, if they are co-eternal and co-equal in power, authority, and dignity, then how is it that Paul can say that God is the head or the authority over Christ? Well, notice what Paul says. He doesn't say the Father is the head of the Son. He says God is the head of Christ. The word Christ is a reference to the Son of God made flesh. Paul has the humanity of Jesus in view here. The will of the Son of God and the will of the Father is the same will, for they are of the same essence as the one being of God. So within the Godhead, there is no subjecting of one will to another, 
because that would lead you down a path of thinking there's three gods. There's only one God, one mind, one will, one essence. The will of Christ's divine nature is one with the Father. So when Paul says that God is the head over Christ, he has in view the will of Christ's human nature being subjected to God the Father. We see that in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. He's speaking of his human will that he subjected to his Father. Jesus, in taking our human nature upon himself, he has become our great example of how to conduct ourselves with respect to those who have authority over us. If I want to know how I should conduct myself in relation to someone who has authority over me, I look at Jesus and how he conducted himself. And that's how I learn how I ought to behave. So this is the great principle that Paul lays down before he begins to get into this issue here. Each one of us has a head. Each one of us has an authority over us. And that is something we must keep in mind when we come to worship the living God. We are not a law unto ourselves. That brings us to our second point in verses 4 through 6. In these verses, we find a practice established. A practice established. And to establish the legitimacy of this practice, Paul makes an appeal to honor. This was an honor-shame culture. And to make this point, Paul is making an appeal to honor. Look at verse 4. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying shames his head. Now the, difficulty, the difficulties with this passage begin right off the bat, right here. It literally says every man who has something coming down from the head while praying or prophesying shames his head. Now we don't really know what this would be that a man would place upon his head. Paul doesn't tell us. Paul could have in mind the practice of taking one's toga and putting it up like a hood on top of your head. That was actually a common practice for Romans at that time when they were participating in pagan sacrifices. And if that's Paul's point here, especially coming off the heels of chapters 8 through 10, he'd be saying that for a man to pray or prophesy in the same manner as a pagan would end up shaming the man's head, that is, shaming Christ who is the head of the man. Now, though Paul begins addressing the man here in verse 4, the man does not seem to be Paul's major concern in this passage as a whole. Because as we go down through, he elaborates far more with regard to the woman. And when we come to chapter 13, or verse 13, Paul says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? So it seems that the issues with this Corinthian church regarding this matter was mainly within the women in the church. Paul seems to be using verse 4 as an argument to show that how we dress matters as he prepares to address the main issue, which is the attire of the women during worship. So he's saying, listen, if the men should not prophesy 
dressed in a certain way, you ladies also should not do the same dressed in a certain way. That comes to verse 5. Paul says, But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying shames her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. This verse makes it clear that in that culture, in that Greco-Roman Corinthian culture, it brought shame for a woman to have her head shaved. Now, there are a number of ancient Greek extra-biblical texts that indicate that for a woman to have her head shaved or to have her hair cut short, that was inflicted upon a woman who was found to be guilty of adultery. Shaving her head or cutting her hair short was a punishment that brought public shame upon the woman who had committed that deed. So Paul wants these believers to understand that just as a woman would feel shame regarding her physical head if it were shaved, so the woman's spiritual head, man, would be shamed if she prayed or prophesied with her head uncovered, that is, without having a hood on her head. Now our question is why? Why would it bring shame on a man in that day and age if, for example, a man's wife prayed or prophesied during corporate worship with her head uncovered? We don't experience that here. Well, part of what makes this passage so hard to handle is we're trying to listen in on only one half of a conversation that Paul is having with these believers. They knew exactly what he was talking about. And the other reason why this is hard to handle is we don't have a full understanding of what all the customs were of that region and that time period. But there are indications in ancient literature and in ancient sculpture that tell us that respectable women would wear head coverings in public in that culture. There also seem to be indications that for a woman to go out in public without such a head covering might have indicated a willingness on her part to commit immorality. Now, if that's the case, we can see how a woman praying or prophesying with a head uncovered within corporate worship would shame her husband if it looks like she's willing to be unfaithful to him. In verse 6 of chapter 11, Paul presses his point further. He says, for, a, for if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut short. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut short or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Paul seems to be saying that if the Corinthian women were willing to take the first step toward immorality by dressing in a provocative way, then they might as well go all the way to the end of where that road would take them by shaving their head off. On the other hand, if they agree that such an end would be disgraceful for them, then they should not even take that first step down that painful road. And they should cover their head, especially during corporate worship. Nothing could be worse than becoming a stumbling block to brothers and sisters in the church. Now, this is a lesson that we all need to take to heart, whether you're a man or a woman. We hear all the time about prominent Christians who have experienced a great fall 
into immorality. But we need to remember that that shameful fall, the end of that road, was only the end of a very long road. We ought to consider how that road began, how they got started down that path. Maybe it was a a simple willingness to be placed in a compromising situation. Maybe it was a sinful desire that began to be entertained. Maybe it was a wardrobe choice before going to church that sent a subtle message to others about one's willingness to break covenant with one's spouse. And another thing to keep in mind is when such a fall happens, is it ever only one person who gets affected? Is there usually only one person involved in that sin? No, other people get drawn in. We need to be guardians over one another's souls and consciences, not stumbling blocks, not instruments in the devil's hands that he would use to devour others. If we don't want the shame that such a fall would bring upon ourselves and upon those who are in authority over us, then we should not even take the first step down that path. So that's a practice established. Paul doesn't want them to take that first step toward immorality by how they were dressing. That brings us to verses 7 through 12 where we find this practice of covering the head during worship explained. A practice explained. And to explain the the reasoning behind this practice, Paul appeals to creation. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 explains why it is a woman should cover her head. He says, For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. In corporate worship, a man was not to veil his head. He was not to cover up the image and the glory of God in himself that God intended to have shown forth in the context of public worship. Now, Paul does not explain here how a man wearing a head covering would block our view of God's glory, how that would hinder our worship of him. Maybe it had to do with the fact that I mentioned before that pagan men would cover their heads during corporate worship, of pagan worship, that is. Or maybe it had to do with the fact that such a practice, a man covering the head, would blur the God-given distinctions between men and women. Paul doesn't tell us. I don't know. But again, this is not Paul's main point. Rather, he's saying this to set up for his next argument as to why the women were to wear head coverings. In this verse, we see that the reason the woman was to wear a head covering is because she is the glory of man. You're probably saying, I don't get it. That's what I've been saying all week, going through this passage. But listen, when we gather together to worship, whose glory are we here to see God's glory, Christ's glory, not man's glory? Paul says that the woman is the glory of man. 
And this gives us a clue as to the theological purpose that Paul sees behind head coverings in that culture. Head coverings on a woman concealed the glory of man in her so that the worshipers could focus their attention on the glory of God rather than on the glory of man. Now let's just think on that for a little bit. How is the woman the glory of man? Well, I speak for all the husbands here when I say that our wives are the most beautiful thing about us. Our wives are a sight for sore eyes, whereas we husbands are more a sight that gives people sore eyes. I want you to listen to Proverbs chapter 12. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4. Solomon writes, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Then turn to chapter 31 of Proverbs. This is of the excellent wife. This this chapter speaks of, of the excellent wife. Proverbs 31, verse 23. Speaking of this excellent wife, he says, Her husband is known in the gates when he sits with the elders of the land. And since the focus of this portion of Proverbs is on the excellent wife, the the inference that we get out of this is that it's not the husband's status that makes the wife excellent. Rather, it's because the wife is excellent that her husband enjoys his status in the gates. There are just a couple indications how The woman is the glory of man. When God created man, do you remember what he said about man being alone? He said it was not good. And when you get through reading Genesis 1 and you come to chapter 2 and the Lord testifies that it's not good for a man to be alone, that's jarring because There was the constant refrain in chapter 1 of every time God made something, he stepped back and he pronounced it good. But when God created man in his image, when it was just Adam standing there by himself, that was not good. It seems that it wasn't until God created Eve that God's image in mankind was complete. And God could finally say of all his creation that it was very good. And when God brings Adam's wife to him, I'll have to have somebody else come up here and read this. (laughs) I didn't expect this to happen. He bursts into poetry. He says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I think I read that right. Solomon, he wrote poetry about his sweetheart in the Song of Songs. And I find it very easy to write poetry to my wife because she inspires it in me. So, the woman is the glory of man. And this is so much the case that it was appropriate for the women in that culture to shroud that glory by covering their head because their hair was the symbol of that glory that would cause distraction from the worship of God due to what the presentation of her hair communicated to onlookers. Paul again alludes back to Genesis chapter 2 to explain how it is that the woman is the glory of man. Look at what he says in verses 8 and 9. He says, For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. When you go to Genesis 2 and verse 7, you see that God directly created Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed life into him. And God's intention was for Adam to reflect his glory. But rather than creating Eve from the dust of the ground as well, he created her out of a rib from Adam's side, which was totally different from how God created any of the other others of his creatures, land creatures. He created them out of the dust of the ground, just like he did Adam. And this demonstrated that Eve was made with a special purpose to complete what was lacking in the man that God had made. And though, according to Genesis 1, verse 27, Eve was made in the image of God as Adam was, God's intended design for Eve was to reflect man's glory. That's what Paul tells us here. Since she was literally made out of Adam's body. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, or excuse me, chapter 11, verse 10, Paul draws a conclusion. He says, Therefore, the woman ought to have authority on her head because of the angels. Now, in this one verse, there are two very difficult phrases to interpret. We expected Paul to say here, therefore the woman ought to cover her head, because it's in parallel with what he said up in verse 7. A man ought not cover his head. When we come to verse 10, we expect him to say, therefore the woman ought to cover her head, which is what he's been saying. But instead, he says, the woman ought to have authority on her head. Now, that's a strange phrase. It could mean one of a couple things. Some translations supply the word sign or symbol as a clarification. The woman should have a sign of authority on her head, showing that they take that word authority to be a descriptive word that Paul chose to use in place of the word covering. 
In this view, Paul is saying that the woman ought to have a covering on her head as a sign of her submission to her husband, who is her spiritual head. That could be what Paul is saying. Well, the problem is that anytime Scripture speaks of a person having authority, it always means just that. It's that person who has that authority that is being mentioned. And if this is the case here, it should be translated, the woman ought to have authority over her head. In that case, Paul would be saying that the woman is to have control over her physical head and that the proper exercise of that control should lead her to willingly cover her own head in corporate worship. But again, what does that mean? And once again, it's hard to say. It may mean that the woman should not let just anyone gaze upon her in a way that only her husband should gaze upon her. She should maintain that control over her head and not give herself over to onlookers. In the corporate worship of God, she should not reveal the glory of her husband in a distracting way that may become a stumbling block for others. That brings us to the second phrase of verse 10, which is very difficult. Paul says, the woman ought to have authority on her head because of the angels. And once again, Paul doesn't explain what he's talking about. The Corinthians for sure knew what he was talking about, but he doesn't tell us. But it seems to be some kind of indication that angels are present when the corporate worship of God is taking place. And what do we know about angels? They have direct access to heaven where they dwell in the presence of the searing light of the glory of God. Remember Revelation chapter 22? In that episode between the Apostle John and the angel he fell before to worship? Revelation 22 Verses 8 and 9, do you remember what what the angel said in response to John falling to worship him? Verse 9, but the angel said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow slave with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Angels are repulsed by the worship of anything other than the one true God. Paul may be drawing attention to the presence of angels in order to drive home the point that the ladies should not dress in a way that would distract from the worship of the one true God. Now let me try to apply what we've seen here. Though Paul's focus in this passage has been on the ladies of that congregation, this church does have broad application to men and women today. In the church, we are here to worship God. We should not seek to draw attention to ourselves in any way. However, ladies, being the glory of man by God's design, have a unique capacity to distract attention from the glory of God. And this is not a slam on the women. This is a glory of the woman 
And because it is such a wonderful glory, it has that much more capacity to distract from the one who deserves our worship. It does no good to deny the God-given, God-glorifying, God-designed distinctions between men and women. And it does no good to pretend, for the sake of political correctness, that women do not have a greater power than men to inspire awe and wonder by their feminine beauty. Let's be honest. That's just the way it is. Denying that doesn't do our sanctification any favors. And men, being the sinners that they are by their own wicked lust and their tendency to worship the creature rather than the creator, can tend to pervert that awe and wonder that women inspire. It's important for ladies to understand the ways in which they can become a stumbling block to men when it comes to how they dress. Now, in no way am I suggesting that when a man falls into immorality, I am in no way suggesting that the blame is to be fully placed upon the woman. No way. Men, if you lust and if you commit sexual immorality, you have no one to blame but yourself and the wickedness that lies within your own evil heart. And you need to confess your sin to God and you need to ask his forgiveness based upon Jesus' death on the cross in the place of sinners and you need to ask for his help to put that sin to death in your heart. But ladies, you need to realize how God has created you. And you need to seek to obey 1 Corinthians 10, 32. Give no offense. That is, don't become a stumbling block either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. And ladies, if you're not sure and I don't, I don't think this is a problem in this church, so please know I don't have anybody in mind. But if you are not sure whether or not how you dress would cause offense, ask your spiritual head, ask your husband or your father, and he'll be able to tell you. I guarantee you he knows. He knows. Verses 11 and 12, Paul says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. But all things originate from God. Paul seems to be guarding here against the men of the congregation becoming prideful in their position of authority as the head of the woman. According to verse 11, Women need their men, and the men need their women. Again, it's not good for the man to be alone. In Christ, none of us is without the need of the other. Every believer in the body of Christ, whether male or female, is absolutely essential and is needed by every other believer. We see that in chapter 12. And verse 12 of this chapter reminds the men that though Eve was created out of the man, ever since then, men have come into this world through women. 
And a man becomes an utter fool when he thinks that he does not need the women in his life because he apparently forgets that for the first nine months of his entire existence, he was totally dependent upon the woman who bore him, and then for several years beyond that. And because all things originate from God, man should not think that he is an end to himself. God has given men the role they have, and he's given women the role that they have for the glory of God, not the glory of men and not the glory of women. Finally, that brings us to verses 13 through 16, where we see this practice encouraged, this practice of head covering encouraged, and Paul does so by an appeal to social norms, an appeal to social norms. Now, these last four verses are important to consider when it comes to determining whether or not head coverings are something that women in the church should be practicing today. Look at verse 13. Paul says, Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray with God or to pray to God with her head uncovered? Paul puts the question to these believers. And he believes, apparently, that the answer should be obvious to these Corinthians. What's the expected answer from them? Well, no, it's not proper for a woman to pray to God uncovered. He says, is it proper or is it fitting? Now, if Paul were to ask us that same question today, we would probably give the opposite answer. Like, yeah, I don't see any problem with that. It seems proper for a woman to pray uncovered to the Lord. I don't see any problem with that. You see, the answer that was obvious to the Corinthians is no longer obvious to us today, which gives us a hint that cultural expectation is at play here. Apparently in Corinth, it was expected that women wear a head covering in social situations and that it would be offensive if they did not. And since Paul has just instructed these believers in chapter 10 to avoid causing unnecessary offense for the sake of the gospel, it makes sense that Paul is making this an issue. Here in 21st century America, it's not expected that a woman wear a head covering in social situations. And we know this, if the wives in our congregation don't wear a head covering, today that does not give men the impression that that woman would be willing to be unfaithful to her husband. Nor is it a major distraction when it comes to the worship of God. In our culture, it is not the stumbling block that it was in that culture. And so... If you are waiting with bated breath, I don't think the ladies are supposed to wear head coverings today. I don't think that's the issue. The issue is what is causing offense, what furthers the gospel, what hinders the gospel. But we can apply it today. If other articles are clothing, of clothing are missing from women that reveal the glory of man, articles of clothing that are socially expected, that would send an offensive message and become a distraction from the worship of God. Modesty is important. It means something. 
In verses 14 and 15 of this chapter, Paul gives a final argument for why the women in Corinth should have been wearing head coverings during worship. He says, Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. When Paul mentions the teaching of nature, it's apparent that he doesn't mean creation itself. Because men and women, we have the same capacity to grow hair. I could grow hair as long as my wife. That's a scary thought, but I could do it. Nature in the sense of creation would seem to teach the opposite of what Paul says here. But one standard lexicon says that the word translated nature, it can carry the meaning of the regular or established order of things. In other words, the way things are. Different cultures have their different established order of things, the way things are. And apparently in the Greco-Roman culture of Corinth and the other churches throughout that world planted by the apostles, men wore short hair and women wore long hair. And a woman's long hair was a glory to her. It was a celebrated mark of her womanhood. If a man wore long hair, it was a dishonor to him because it obscured his manhood and it robbed him of what outwardly distinguished him from women. Paul's point here seems to be that if the ladies in Corinth are willing to submit to the societal norm of having long hair, they should also be willing to submit to the societal norm of wearing a head covering in public situations, including the corporate worship of God. God intentionally created men and women with obvious differences. And it's proper for a culture to recognize and celebrate and communicate those differences through appropriate clothing and hairstyle. And it's proper for the church in seeking to avoid unnecessary offense to preserve those differences in corporate worship. After all, we've been left on this earth to bring the gospel to the society where God in his providence has placed us. It does no good to hinder our gospel testimony by dressing in a way that causes unnecessary offense. Now, we tend to downplay the importance of our outward appearance. But as we saw back in chapter 10, verse 31, we need to reconsider that tendency. In 10.31, we were commanded, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, including how you dress, do all to the glory of God. In our culture today, there's a big push to remove all differences between men and women. So that you can be whatever you want to be, rather than submit to what God has chosen you to be. Our culture says that if you're a man but you want to become a woman, that's fine. Or that if you're a woman but you want to become a man, that's fine. Our culture says that if the wife wants to be the head of the home and if the man wants to submit to his wife in everything, that's fine. God says, no, that's not fine. I made you the way I made you for a reason, to bring glory to my name, and you have no right as the creature to decide otherwise. Should we not dress in a way that clearly communicates who God has made us 
to be. Is that not something that our confused culture needs to be reminded of? After all, God is our ultimate head, is he not? All things have originated from him, have they not? God gets to decide whether I'm a man or a woman. God gets to decide what role I play in bringing him glory. That decision is not ours to make. So, is this passage demanding that our church begin requiring the ladies to wear head coverings? I don't believe so. I hear a great sigh of relief in the congregation. But it is requiring us to humbly submit to God's authority in our lives and to whatever delegated authority figure he has placed us under. This passage is requiring us to make the worship of God the ultimate priority in our lives and to not become a stumbling block to others, to deny our own authority, our own freedom for the sake of serving others and furthering the gospel. It requires us to do all things, even to dress to the glory of God. And finally, verse 16 says, But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Christians are not supposed to be contentious. In Paul's day, all the Christians were submitting to this societal norm for the sake of reaching the lost for Christ. And if the Corinthians were to buck against this, what would that say about them? Well, if we today refuse to humble ourselves and submit to the authority of God's word over our lives, what does that say about us? It might say that we have yet to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is our head, the Lord over our lives. But we have to understand that Jesus is not the tail that we get to wag back and forth however we want. Jesus is the head, and he determines which way we go. And we must repent of our rebellious self-rule. We must submit to his rule. We must trust that he alone has done enough to save us by his death and resurrection, and that he alone is worthy to rule our lives. Let's pray.